you know, I really appreciate the, uh, the kids from the children's ministry coming and kind of sharing about uh, what they're learning about in children's ministry. It started because, um, you know, Isaiah asked me what I was uh, preaching about this weekend. I said I was going to teach about Jesus and the feeding of the 4,000. And he was like, oh, I know all about that story. So he started recounting everything and telling me the story uh, a little bit better than he did tonight, just now, but we'll, we'll count that for uh, stage fright. And um, after he finished, I thought, you know what, you know, that's, that's, that's probably better recounting than I could do myself. So I asked Isaiah if he was willing to share, and he was willing, but he was like, am I going to do it alone? So I reached out to Eugenia, I was like, hey, would, would Luke be willing to do this with, uh, with Isaiah? And it was really cute because she told me, like, oh, he says he's really scared. Uh, but if he says, he says that it will help Uncle Bryant in his sermon, then, then he's willing to do it. So he's a heart of service and sacrifice. But I was really encouraged because, like, it's, it's, it's been great to go through this Book of Mark together in our sermon series. You know, all the campuses are doing it together, and I think that's uh, really cool. And I think it's um, been really powerful for myself, and I've heard it's been really powerful for a lot of people in our community group ministry that we're going through the scriptures together in this book of Mark, but I thought it was just uh, a cool thing to note that the, that the children in the children's ministry, they're going through uh, the same stories, and they're learning the same things, and, and it's impacting their lives in some way, so I hope that's a cool encouragement for you, but if there was one little mistake, I'm not going to be legalistic with Isaiah, but if there was one little mistake that he made, did you guys catch it? I told him that I was feeding I was teaching on the feeding of the 4,000. He's like, oh, I know all about it. And he recounted the teaching of the 5,000. So in his mind, he was like, my father must just be mistaken. He must have just got the numbers mixed up. Because there's a lot of commonality. It's, 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 it's understandable why you would get those stories confu- confused because there's a lot of com- commonality between these two stories. Uh, most of what Luke and Isaiah just shared about the feeding of the 5,000 you see it happen in today's passage in the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus is, in both of these stories, Jesus is teaching before a large crowd in kind of a remote place that doesn't have an easy access to food. And the crowd starts to get hang- hungry. And Jesus takes a very small amount of food and he multiplies it to an amount that can feed a very, very large crowd, literally thousands of people. So these are two stories are very, very similar but then I think the question then begins, the, the question that, that I would ask myself is why? Why, do, why does the gospel writer Mark include both of these very, very similar stories just two chapters apart? If you think about it in the gospel of John, right, it ends with this, what I think is the biggest cliffhanger of all time. He says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. You guys hear that? John is saying that Jesus did so many things. He interacted with so many people. He taught so many times. He performed so many miracles that I could write for the rest of my life and I wouldn't even begin to make a dent in it. And so if, as a Bible reader, you've got to be a little bit frustrated because you, you should just take some more time and write some more. I want to know more about that. It would have been a good use of your time, but if... You're saying, uh, just for the sake of this illustration, you're saying there were 10,000 events that the Bible, the writers of the Bible could have chosen in these accounts of Jesus' earthly ministry and that each of them maybe chose their top 20 to include in their accounts. Why would Mark, 
right? So many other things to choose from. Why would he choose to include two miracle events that were, let's face it, very, very common, that had a lot of overlap? See, because if the whole point was that Jesus is able to feed many people with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish, he's already proven that point when he feeds the 5,000. And even if the point is Mark is trying to show that Jesus is using the bread as a metaphor, that he is actually the bread of life, and he is what's going to give us eternal sustenance, Again, he's already proven that. He's already done that, accomplished that in the feeding of the 5,000. And besides, although feeding 4,000 is a pretty cool miracle, it's not quite as impressive as feeding 5,000. It's somewhat anticlimactic. So what's the point, and why are we taking the time to study this passage today? We're going to ask three questions. The first is, what does Jesus feel for the crowd? The second is, what does Jesus feel for you? And lastly, what does Jesus feel for the people in your life? Okay, and that first question is, what, what does Jesus feel for the crowd? That's an easy answer. Right? It's literally written right there. What is it? What does Jesus feel for the crowd? Compassion. He says it. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. He has compassion for this crowd of people. And compassion is a function of love, but it's a Particularly exp- a particular expression of love. It's being moved by someone else's suffering. That's literally what the word means. If you take it in Latin, come means with, and passion means suffering. It means to suffer with somebody. The Greek word means to have such compassion that it's like your internal organs move. That you feel from the depths of your body that you see someone, it's not just recognizing someone's suffering, but something happens within you. It's a deep feeling for their need, their pain, and their suffering. And some of us, right, a lot of us who have grown up in the church, who have been in the church for a while, would be quick to pass over this idea. We'd say to ourselves, sure, Jesus is compassionate. I knew that already. Jesus' compassion, got it. Now let's move on to talking about the miracle. But I would argue just because it's an easy answer, it doesn't mean it's something that we should quickly overlook. It's actually a really big idea that Jesus feels compassion for this crowd. Because let me ask you this. What would you do if you were Jesus? What would you do if you were Jesus? If you had all the miraculous power like Jesus did, how would you use them? Or perhaps even more important, why would you use them? I imagine that some of us would, if we had this power, we'd use them to just kind of show off a little bit. But the fact is most of us would use our powers to benefit ourselves in in a way. Think about this. How many times have you daydreamed about you winning the lottery? You've probably done it a lot. How many times have you daydreamed about somebody else winning the lottery? Probably not so much. Because there's something that in our dreams, when we have more access to power or influence, we want those things to better ourselves more than other people. It's human nature. And I would like to believe that if we were like Jesus, if we were all-powerful, we would use our help at some point to help other people, but 
I think we can all admit that we'd probably do it after we helped ourselves first. But you can compare that to how Jesus uses his miraculous powers. He certainly didn't use them to show off, right? I mean, Jesus comes, he's like, I'm the son of God. I've come down to this world to walk among the people and to announce my arrival, to impress everybody, to prove to everybody that I'm a big deal, I'm going to turn bread into, drumroll, more bread. You, with your somewhat limited imagination, could easily come up with miracles that are more impressive than that. The fact is, Jesus was not trying to show off. In fact, you see throughout the scriptures, he's constantly telling people, don't tell people about my miracles. Don't tell people what I did for you. Jesus is, and, and, and also you have to consider the fact that Jesus never actually used his miracles to really benefit himself. Not once. When he was in the wilderness and he was hungry, did he make bread for himself? No, he refused to. He refused to call on God's angels to rescue him at the cross. Even though it might have been better for him to use his powers to benefit himself, he didn't do it. Because it wasn't about that for Jesus. Jesus' miracles were an act of compassion. And it's not just in today's passage either. You see it all throughout the Gospels. Mark 1.41, when the man with leprosy comes to him, it says that Jesus felt what? Compassion for him. In chapter 6, when he sees the crowd and he sees them and looks at them like sheep without a shepherd, he feels what? He feels compassion for them. Matthew 9.36, Matthew 14.14, on and on and on, you see it recurring theme through the Gospels that Jesus feels compassion for the people that he meets. I say this because oftentimes we talk about miracles as a teaching opportunity for Jesus or for something that points to his divinity. And while those things are true, we shouldn't miss the fact that they were acts that were fueled by compassion. You see, these miracles are not just about bread and fish and feeding more people, because if they were, then it would make sense to feed more people the second time. I feed 5,000 people in Mark 6. I want to really show people I'm good at making bread and feeding people. So in Mark 8, what I'm going to do, I'm going to feed 10,000 people. If it was a numbers game, if it was about impressing people and showing off his power, then Jesus had it all mixed up when he fed 5,000, then 4,000. But what if the reason Jesus did it this way was to show us that actually it's not about the numbers and it's not about impressing people, but Jesus, when he walks around and he sees 5,000 people hungry, uh, hungry, 4,000 people hungry, it doesn't matter. He feels the same compassion for them. It's not about impressing people. It's about showing the compassion that he has for them. So much so that I think if you come away from a passage like today and you're just thinking, wow, that's really cool that Jesus can make bread and feed a lot of people with it, you, you, I think, are being impressed by the wrong miracle. Because the miracle that should impress us, impact us, and leave us in awe is this, that Jesus, the Son of God, would feel compassion for mankind. Because Jesus didn't just feel compassion that day for a hungry crowd. And he didn't just feel compassion that day for, uh, on that day when he met that man with leprosy or the demon-possessed man or the widow. 
Jesus, if you think about his life, he felt compassion when he chose chose to enter into this world and to suffer on our behalf. You know, the passage in Philippians 2 is really famous. It reads, do not... Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What is that? We're talking about compassion. And the passage continues, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's a miracle of compassion. That's way more impressive. That's way more mind-blowing than taking some bread and feeding a bunch of people. Now let's back up. If we would, what's a good definition for this idea of a miracle? I think you could use this definition. It's a suspension of the natural order. Right? You have a way things normally work in this world, and Jesus comes and does a miracle and throws everything out, up in the air. And I would say that the real miracle is Jesus giving up his rights and his glory to enter into this world. There's no greater disruption to the natural order of this universe than Jesus becoming a man. That's a miracle of compassion. I was trying to think of ways to express this. And I thought uh, back to last week. Um, I don't remember why. I was, I was up in Uptown. You know, I was driving, uh, I was driving uh, in Uptown, and I saw this huge line. This huge line, like, I don't know, five or six blocks deep. And I was driving uh, down Broadway, and I took a left on Lawrence, and I saw that this huge line of probably maybe 1,000, 2,000 people was all lined up for the, the Riviera Theater over there. I was all excited. I was like, oh my gosh, who's performing? Who's performing? I was disappointed to find out that it was Lana Del Rey. I didn't even know that she was popular anymore. I was like, are you kidding? Like, all these people lined up for Lana Del Rey? You know? And those people, it was a cold day that day. It was a cold day. And those people must have, especially those people in the front, they must have waited for hours. They must have been the biggest Lana Del Rey fans in all of Chicago. Maybe they took off of work early. They sacrificed. They paid a price to be waiting in that line so that when those doors open, they can be the people in the front row to enjoy a Lana Del Rey concert. Now imagine to yourself, you've been sitting there in the cold for hours and hours and hours And Lana Del Rey herself comes out to greet the crowd. She says, thank you, everybody. So glad everybody's here. But today, we're going to try something different. And we're going to fill this auditorium from the back first. What would you do if you had been sitting there waiting in line the whole time? You'd be outraged. You'd think to yourself, but I did everything. I waited. I was cold. I left work early. And you'd be so upset or offended because you'd be like, I deserve to be the person who sits in the front row at this concert. Or if you were going to go on vacation and you booked a ticket in international first class, you paid $5,000 or $10,000, and you get there and they say, sorry, 
We oversold first class, so you're just going to have to sit and coach. What would you do? You'd be really, really upset. You'd be like, I made this reservation. I paid the cost. I should get to sit in first class. There's no way I'm sitting in coach. You would not find that to be acceptable. But what we would be so unwilling to do to give up what we're entitled to, to give up what we deserve, to give up our rights, that's what Jesus did on an infinitely grander scale. I mean, think about that. He was the very nature of God. Right? Like angels would sit there and just worship and praise him. And he decided to trade that for the rejection and mockery of man. He sat in heaven and he was basking in his glory. And he traded that for the horrible offense of the cross. I mean, he did. He gave up rights and entitlements that none of us would do. And he did it why? If you asked him why, I think there's a, there's a chance he would echo these words in the book of Mark. Why did you do that, Jesus? I think he would say something like, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And I had compassion on them. You know, I think that's a miracle that Jesus said that he would come into this world. And the fact that Jesus would choose to forfeit everything so that he could come and suffer with man, suffer on your behalf and my behalf, the idea that Jesus has compassion for mankind is a far greater miracle than any bread multiplication. All right? And the second question is this. What does Jesus feel for you? Right? It's easy to answer what does Jesus feel for the crowd, but what does Jesus feel for you? In his uh, book, Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer writes this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I would kind of tweak that a little bit and ask you this question today. What does God think about you? What does God feel? What emotions come into his heart when he thinks about you? Does he feel compassion? Do you really believe that? Or do you think God looks at you and he feels disappointed or frustrated? Do you think God is tired of you? Or do you think God is even angry at you? Because you see, the, the answer to the question, why does, what does Jesus feel about the crowd? That's an easy one. He feels compassion for them. He knows they're hungry. He knows they don't have food. So he has compassion on them and he performs this miracle to feed them. But the answer to the question, what does Jesus feel for you, that's a tougher question. See, you might accept that Jesus was compassionate to a hungry crowd 2,000 years ago, but the important thing for us to figure out is if you think he would be compassionate towards you today, the way you are. It's easy to accept that Jesus had compassion on the crowd because it's written in the pages of the Bible. But if you lift it from the pages of the Bible and into your real life, if you were face to face with Jesus today, do you think that Jesus would say, I have compassion for you? Well, 
This is the thing. You'll never believe that God has compassion for you if you feel like you aren't a person in need of compassion. And I bring that up because I think there's a lot of people who t- here today who don't really feel like you're in need of the compassion of Christ. You think that you're a good person. You think you're okay. You think you're self-sufficient. You think you've got this down pretty well. And I would challenge that idea. Uh, you know, Franz Kafka, he was, this, um, he was this writer, kind of a philosopher maybe a little bit, at the turn of the 20th century. Although he grew up in a Jewish family, by the time he was a teenager, he had identified himself as an atheist. And one of his most famous works was this book or short story, The Trial. And it's all about this guy, Joseph K. You don't know much about this guy, but what happens is he gets arrested. He gets imprisoned. He's taken into custody, and the whole, the whole, from beginning to the end of the book, you never know why he's taken into custody. You never know why he's on trial. You don't know what the charges are. And he's moved from one detainment to another. He meets with all these different people, judges, guards. He has all these conversations, and he can never figure out exactly what he is in custody for. And he, so what he does is what any person would do. He starts to think about his life. And he thinks, well, maybe it's because of that relationship, or maybe it's because I did this, and he's running through all these different things in his life, thinking, what could I have done to get me in this position? And everything that he comes up with, he's like, it doesn't seem like it would be bad enough for this to happen. And he just sits there, and he struggles with what he's accused of or why he's on trial, and the ending is really abrupt. Two guards come, they take him, they stab him with a butcher knife, and Joseph's final words are, like a dog. Not a happy ending. And so you have this really uh, deep intellectual work by Kafka, and you're like, what is this about? What is this trial about? This, uh, this, this trial where you don't know the charges and you don't understand why, uh, what you've done to be put in this position, why you're in custody and why you're on trial, and then eventually why you're executed or murdered. And Kafka explains it in one of his diaries. And he says, says this, the state in which we find ourselves in today is sinful, quite independent of guilt. The state in which we find ourselves in today is sinful, quite independent of guilt. In other words, what Kafka is saying is that you can say that you're an atheist. Okay, You can reject the existence of God. You can turn your nose up at the idea of absolute good and evil. And you can scoff at the idea of eternal judgment. And yet at the same time, when push comes to shove, this is the thing. You're still going to feel like there's something wrong with you. You're still going to feel like there's something that's just not right. And Tim Keller writes this, Though our culture has abandoned the ancient categories of sin and guilt, we still have a profound, inescapable sense that if we were examined, we would be rejected. You don't believe in sin. You don't believe in judgment. You don't believe in guilt. And yet, you still somehow know that you're unclean. I think all of us can relate to that. You want the answer why some of you in here are so deathly afraid of disappointing anybody? Why you're stuck in relationships that are so unhealthy? Why you give away the prime of your lives to a job that doesn't actually satisfy you? The answer, the very possible answer is that the reason why you do these things is because you know that on a very deep level, there's something very wrong and very flawed about you. And you're desperately trying to hide or contain or cover that 
thing. You're in need of love and acceptance and, yes, compassion, and you're looking for it in all the wrong places. You know, Jesus touches this on, on this when he says in verse 15, he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Right? I don't make bread, so like I had to kind of look up what this means. But leaven or yeast, it's something that starts really small and gets big. It expands, it grows, it gets everywhere. It, and this idea spiritually is that it contaminates, it defiles. <coughs> Excuse me. And Jesus is saying, okay, watch out for the leaven of Herod and the leaven of Pharisees. I have two case studies here I'm going to show you. Okay, the first one is Herod. And if you look back in Mark 6, you'll see that he's a powerful man. He's a man who abuses his power. He's a man that stole his brother's wife. He murders John the Baptist. You might say that Herod is this bully. He's a brute. He's a bad man. He's an evil man. He's a sinner. So on the first side, you have Herod. Some people rebel against God by being really, really, really bad. And Jesus says, well, on the other hand, on the other side of this case study, you have the Pharisees, and and they seem like they're the exact opposite of Herod. The Pharisees are very, very, very good. They do all the right things. They're the ones who live by the laws. They're in their community. They're respected. They're honored. They're looked up to. They're held in high esteem in their society. But Jesus says, watch out for them. And we might say, well, I get that I need to watch out for the leaven of Herod. I get why I have to watch out for doing all these bad and really sinful and naughty things. But the Pharisees, why do I have to watch out and not become like them? How does that even make sense? And Jesus says, yeah, you've got to watch out for them too. Because what Jesus is saying is there's two ways to reject the love the approval, and even the compassion of God. And one way is to rebel to be very, very, very good, and the other way is to reject him by being very, very, very bad. You see, when you reject the compassion of God by trying to be really good, what you're saying to God is basically, no thanks. I'm not really in need of your compassion because I can figure this out. I can fix myself up. I can better myself. I can make myself approvable. And when you do all these things, when you say I'm going to follow all these rules and these laws and I'm going to be a good person, what you're really doing is saying that you have rights and that you can demand something from God. God has to repay you for your good deeds. If you look at the passage, that's what's happening. The Phar- it says in verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. Who, in their right mind, walks up to Jesus and starts arguing with him? Who walks up to Jesus and makes demands of him? Spiritually entitled people, that's who. People who think they've got something coming with God, that's who. They aren't doing all these good things because they love God and they want to honor him and worship them with their lives. They're doing these things because they love themselves. The last thing they want to do is find themselves in a position of the need, a position of need for the compassion of God. So what do they do? They live these really, really, really good lives so they can make demands of him. But the thing is, when you come to Jesus in a position of need, 
When you come to Jesus in need of his compassion, that's when you receive the compassion of God. That's when you have these pivotal, amazing moments with Christ. If you think back to the miracles that we study in the sermon series, in every case where Jesus was moved with compassion, the people were drawn to Jesus in their need. In the case of the leper, he came kneeling and begging Jesus for help. In the case of the man with the unclean spirit, he came flying down that hill to Jesus to worship him. In the case of the crowd who were like sheep without the shepherd, they had to run around the lake, and they were sitting there waiting for Jesus when he got off his boat. And in today's passage, they had been hearing with Jesus his teachings for so long that they had even neglected to eat. And so I ask you, do you recognize your need for the compassion of Christ? And if you do recognize your need for the compassion of Jesus, do you believe that he feels compassion today for you as you are? Do you think of Jesus as being someone you need to persuade or convince of your need or your worthiness before Jesus can grant you what you ask for? Is Jesus like a prospective employer that you've got to impress before you can get that job? Is he like a romantic interest who you need to woo with, uh, with gifts and flowers and utter sweet nothings to you before you can gain their affection? Is Jesus a negotiator who you must promise something really great in order to get what you want? Or is what comes to mind when you think about Jesus, he's incredibly compassionate towards me and he longs to suffer with me. If that's hard for you to accept even now, I will tell you that Jesus was moved by compassion to meet the needs of the leper, the demon-possessed, the hungry, and the hurting. And that's the same Jesus who has compassion for you today. Come to him in need, and you will have your needs for compassion met in him. And the last question is this. What does Jesus feel for the people in your life? What does Jesus feel for the people in your life? You know, he goes through all these, all these miracles in these first eight chapters of Mark, and he even does kind of like a repeat. And sometimes reruns are cool because you notice things you didn't really notice the first time. But he does kind of somewhat a rerun of the feeding of a large amount of people. And then he has this conversation with his disciples, and he's getting kind of frustrated. He's like getting a little bit upset. And he finishes the passage today with this. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not yet understand? It's a loaded question. And what he's saying is all of this stuff, it's pointing to something. Right? It's, it's, it's not just about the bread or the fish or the casting out of demons or the healing of the sticks, sick or the, or the calming of the storms or, or the teaching. That stuff is all great. And I'm glad that you get a kick out of them. But they are all pointing to something greater. And you are totally missing out on what it is. If you think back to <coughs> the beginning of Mark 1, when Jesus is beginning his public ministry and he's making this proclamation, what does he say? It says in Mark 1, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
Jesus is on a mission, and he doesn't deviate from him. The good news is that the law has been fulfilled. That's what he's been talking about all the time in these first eight chapters. Stop mourning. The bridegroom is here. Stop fasting. It was supposed to point to me, and now I'm here. We talked about it last week in the sermon. Stop talking about clean and unclean like, and, and, and what you can and can't eat. Those were just things that you were supposed to learn, but it was supposed to point to me. And now I'm here. The law is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? The kingdom of God is being established. It's happening here in our midst. Jesus, the Savior, has come. The Messiah has come. And I think what he's saying is all the miracles, all the teachings, everything, it points to that, that the miracles were never supposed to impress you about the awesome nature of my power, but they're meant to show you the redemptive purposes of my power. There's this German theologian, Moltmann, who says this, Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. That's, that's deep. Let me read it to you again. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. And what he's saying, <coughs> excuse me, what he's saying is, you know that definition that we came up with miracles about, for miracles before, that there are suspension of the natural order in this world? He's saying that's a wrong definition of what a miracle is. At least Jesus' miracles. Jesus' miracles are not these monumental yet temporary acts of relief from the way things are. But what Jesus is doing is he's saying that disease and sorrow and hunger and even death, all the things that we look at as normal in this broken world, he's saying those are not the natural things. Those are not the ways that I created this world. Those are not the way that things should be. Those are all results of sin and the fall of man, but those aren't the natural things. And when he shows and when he performs these miracles, in his compassion, he is declaring that he is on a mission to make all things new again, to make what's right, what's wrong in this world. And his miracles speak to that. Jesus' miracles are not a suspension of the natural order, but they are a restoration of the natural order. And what Jesus is going to do on his mission to save and restore and redeem this world is he's going to do it through us. That's the crazy thing. You see it all throughout, especially these miracles. Right? He, he works through their inadequacy. He always goes to them and says, how many fish and how many loaves of bread do you guys have? And he takes their limited, inadequate supply and he multiplies it to feeds the thousands. But he didn't have to do that. If he can take five loaves of bread and two fish and feed, get enough food to feed 5,000 people, if he has that power, then it's safe to assume that he could have turned nothing into something. But he chose to base this miracle in what the disciples had. Further, he always chooses to work through the disciples he could have been like, hey, I'm the one who's doing it. 
I'm the one who's multiplied his food. Get in a line and come up and I will hand it to you. But no, he says, I actually want the disciples to be the ones who are handing out the food to these hungry people. Could Jesus have done it himself? Absolutely. And I have no idea why he chose to use people like us, but he did. Jesus is on this mission to show his compassion, to share his compassion with this broken world, to make this world new again, to restore it, to establish his kingdom. And he's enlisting people like us who have experienced that compassion. He's enlisting us to share it with people who have not. So how do you share the compassion of Christ with others in your life? How do you do that? And the answer is not, is not to try harder to be compassionate. It's not the point of the sermon. It's not to say Jesus is our spiritual role model. He he did thus, so we should try harder to be the same. Because if, if that's what you want to do, good luck. Because it won't work. Because if I can be blunt, we suck at being compassionate. We're not good at it. We might be okay at being compassionate with strings attached. As long as these people who in our lives are needy, emotionally, physically needy, whatever it might be, as we might be compassionate with them for a while as long as they say thank you, as long as they start to get their lives together, as long as they make my compassion worth it, or as long as they deserve it, as long as... You, re- you receive a satisfactory return on your investment of compassion. We'll be okay then. Under ideal circumstances, you might be okay at being compassionate. But when these people frustrate you, when they disappoint you, when they lie to you, when they go back on doing the things that they promised to do, when they take advantage of you, that's the kind of compassion we're talking about when we're talking about the compassion of Christ. Are you still good at being a compassionate person? Can you just try harder to be compassionate? How then do we share the compassion of Christ with others? Kind of cheating because I'm pulling this out of part of the passage we didn't read, but in Mark 8, 23, it says this. He's talking to a blind man. He says, do you see anything? What do you see? What do you see? I, I think that's actually really important to what we're talking about. It's not about what you do or what the other people do, but it's, about what you see. It's how you see them. Do you see the people in your life the same way that Jesus sees them? Because if Jesus felt compassion for the crowds and if Jesus feels compassion for you, the last question is, do you see the people in your life the same way that Jesus sees them, that they're objects of his compassion? The answer to that question is important because if we're going to be compassionate towards people in our lives, the way that's going to happen is not to, again, try harder to be like Jesus, but it's going to see people like Jesus sees them. Do you guys know who um, Brene Brown is? And she's, uh, you know, she's, I think she's a researcher. She writes a lot of uh, books. She has TED Talks that have an amazing amount of views. You know? and, and I was watching this uh, segment with her, and she asked this question when talking about compassion. Do you believe that people are doing the best that they can? Do you believe that people are doing the best in, that they can? In general, when people wake up and they get dressed and they go to work and they interact with people, do you think that they're trying their hardest, that they're doing the absolute best that they can? Because there's some people who will be like, no way. People stink. They're lazy. 
You know, they're, they, you know they, 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 they're not good at life. If that's the best that they can do, then it's just not good enough for me. But what Brene Brown argues is the way that you answer that question is going to have a huge impact if you can be compassionate towards other people. She tells a story. She was with this group of deacons, and she asked people to write down the, number, the name of someone who fills them with frustration, disappointment, or resentment, someone who really drives you crazy. So th- even right now, think about someone. I don't think it'll take you that long. Think about someone in your life that you look at that way. Maybe it's a sibling, or maybe it's somebody at your work, or maybe it's one of your children. I don't know. And what she says is this. What if God came down and he stood next to that person and he told you that person is trying the very best that they can? That person is doing their very, very best. How would that change the way that you interact with that person? How would that change the, the compassion that you feel with, for that person? One couple said, we wrote down the same person. and They said that if that actually happened, they could love this person with a non-judgmental heart. That they realized that helping through hatred was not helping. Another man responded, if he's doing the best he can, then I'm a total jerk. And I need to stop harassing him and start helping him. Brene Brown said she actually asked her husband, do you think people are doing the best that they can? And he answered, I don't know. I don't even know how to answer that. But because, you know, this is her thing, she's like, I really want an answer for you. So he thought about it for a while, and he came back to her, and he said this, I have no idea if people are doing the best that they can. But I know that my life is better when I believe that they are. It's powerful stuff. If God said that people in your life are trying their best, that would do wonders for our ability to show compassion for them. But the fact is, The fact is that it's very hard for us to be compassionate towards people that are hurting us and disappointing us. That's just a fact. It's hard to be compassionate towards people who are not living up to our expectations, right? You know, in I think just in over a week, I'm going to take my two sons for the first time on a flight by myself for Thanksgiving. I'm a little bit worried about it, um, but you know why I'm not that worried? is because I have full confidence that I will receive the compassion from mothers. Because I remember when I used to fly with Isaiah by myself, a little baby, I was a rookie dad, I was like, I don't know how this is going to go. I was amazed with the outpouring of compassion and mercy that mothers would show me. I would have women who would literally carry my bags, walk me to the gate, offer to hold my son and changed my son. I actually had them putting my luggage into the overhead compartment for me. But do you know who doesn't receive compassion in those times? Moms. When a mom is traveling around with her infant, other moms don't come up to her and be like, hey, let me help you with that. At least most, uh, that's what I hear. They don't go up to them and say, hey, let me hold your baby, let me feed your baby, let me give you some time to rest and collect yourself. They don't do it. Because when they look at me, they're like, that guy is helpless. That guy is totally overwhelmed. That guy is doing the best that they can, that he can. And the compassion flows. But when they look at a mother alone with her children, they say, 
Well, I did that. I struggled. I made it work. That person, maybe they're doing the best they can, but I've done it better, and so they don't share compassion with that person. And that's the tricky thing about it is that we're so quick to judge and we're so quick to use ourselves as a standard in a very, very biased way that it's hard for us to consistently show compassion to people who we don't think meet up to our standards. But what if instead of this hypothetical idea of God standing next to someone in your life and saying they're trying their best, what if instead we visualize this biblical truth that God is standing next to the person in your life who frustrates you, who disappoints you, who really gets you on your nerves, and he's proclaiming this, I have compassion for that person. It's not uh, just a hypothetical, it's an actual reality. It happened. Jesus came to this earth and he stood next to the outcasts of this society, the least amongst us, the lowest of the low, and he said, I have compassion for these people. How would it change the compassion that we have to share with the people in our lives if we actually stop seeing them as lazy or frustrating or as screw-ups, but if we actually said, it doesn't matter what your best is anymore. It doesn't matter what you do or don't do, but instead we looked at them and we said, all that matters is the way that Jesus sees you. It's not about what you do It's about how Jesus felt about you when he sees you. Because that, when faced with Jesus' question, to come back to how Jesus ends this passage, when Jesus comes to you and he says, after all the miracles and after all the healings and after all the teachings, do you still not understand? It is when we can share the compassion of Christ that we have experienced with the people in our lives because we see them as Jesus sees them, it is then when we can answer our Lord, yes, Jesus, I understand. Let's pray.